going to be looking at uh, one of the stranger and more awkward stories of the Bible. And no, I haven't exhausted all of them. There are many, many more and uh, many different ways to be offended in today's message as well, which is kind of our specialty. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9. If you made it here today without a Bible or outline, we want you to have one so that you can follow along. Just put your hand up if you need one. You can begin turning there. Genesis is the first book in your Bibles. And in last week's study, We witnessed the great flood, the destruction of the earth by water as the Lord saved Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives, along with seven pairs of every clean animal and two pairs of every unclean animal. The Lord brought them safely through the flood, and as the waters receded, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And we read about how Noah exited the ark and offered sacrifices to the Lord in reverence and gratitude. This week, we're going to witness God sharing some important instructions that will be foundational to the new world and society that was beginning with Noah's family. And we're also going to witness a spectacular moral failure by Noah. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is honest about the people it writes about. The Bible records incredible moments of people's lives where they did incredible things for and through God, but it also records their epic failures. And in doing so, the Bible reminds us that every single one of us is human. None of us is immune to sin or making a bad decision. So we should take encouragement from the fact that God uses flawed people like us, but we should also take heed because whoever you are, someone far better than you has fallen into the snare of sin in the scriptures. I had a pastor who shared this question one time. He said, are you stronger than Samson? Are you wiser than Solomon? Are you more passionate about the Lord than David? Because they all fell into serious sin. So don't think it can't happen to you. Don't mess around with sin. And as you can tell, I'm off for another feel-good message today, but it's a good, good realization every now and then to have. Another pastor of mine also used to say regularly, he said, wouldn't you all agree that every single one of us are one bad decision away from completely wrecking our lives? And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Whoever you are, however long you've been doing well, however long you've been faithful, understand the need for vigilance with sin is that every one of us is one bad decision away from ruining our lives. So on that feel-good note, let's jump into the text with verse 1. It says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. So what the Lord is saying is, I'm giving you the ability to subdue the animals. You're going to be able to use them for livestock. You're going to be able to tame horses. You're going to be able to kill even the apex predators of the animal kingdom. The story of the human race is not going to end with Noah and his family getting eaten by lions as soon as they release them. That's not going to happen. God says, you're going to be at the top of the food chain. Verse 3 Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green 
herbs. And if you know a Christian who smokes pot, this is the one Bible verse that I guarantee they know. It's Genesis 9-3 because they'll always say, it says in the Bible, man, I've given you all things even as the green herb, man. I know every pot person you know talks like that, right? Because we're all still in the 60s. But the obvious answer to that by you know is, is why did he give them every green herb? To what? To, to eat, not to smoke. That's an important distinction that I think the Lord felt that he didn't really need to make, right? Okay. So when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were vegetarians because death had not yet entered the world through sin. When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, death entered the world through sin. And we know that in Genesis 4, it mentions men who raised livestock. And this may or may not imply that at least some people had begun to eat meat. Noah's family may have been vegetarian or they may have been eating meat, but we're now wondering, does God want us to go back to the vegetarianism in this new world as it was in the garden? Is that what the Lord wants for us? So whether they were vegetarians the whole time or whether they were wondering if they needed to go back, this is the moment where God officially tells man he can add vitamin steak to his diet. He says if it moves and it's not human and you want to eat it, man, go for it. Have fun with that. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. So the gist of this is make sure something is completely dead before you eat it, which is always good advice because otherwise the thing you're eating may end up eating you. Make sure that the blood is no longer pumping through its veins is the idea here. Now there's a debate among biblical scholars as to whether or not this is an instruction to completely drain all the blood from an animal and there's a case for that. But the overarching point that the Lord is definitely making is make sure the animal is completely dead before you begin to eat it. Verse five, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, and then underline the word for, in the image of God, he made man. What the Lord is actually doing here is he is creating the institution of government, allowing man the privilege of of sovereignly ruling himself on the earth, and he's giving man a foundational block for the building of government and this new society on this new earth. And what the Lord is saying is the foundation of the justice system on earth is to be capital punishment, the death penalty. So write this down and we'll talk about it. God decrees capital punishment as one of the foundations of government and society. It's one of the foundations of government and society. God says if a man commits murder, that man must die. And I use the term murder very intentionally because God would later codify this command in the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment is you shall not murder in Exodus 20, 13. And some of your Bibles there will say you shall not kill, but that is an incorrect translation. The original Hebrew says you shall not murder. And the reason that's important is because there's a fundamental difference between murder and killing. They're completely different things. When the Israelites go off to war and fight a battle, nobody had the view that their soldiers were committing murder. 
Murder is the intentional taking of a life that doesn't need to be taken. Killing is the necessary or unintentional taking of a human life, which happens in the context of things like war or situations where you need to defend yourself or your family against attack. If you attack me and try to murder me and in self-defense I end up killing you, I have not committed murder. Why? Because it was self-defense. If you had successfully killed me, you would have committed murder because you instigated it and it wasn't necessary. The Lord's command is against murder, it's not against killing. And to this day, there are Christian pacifists like the Seventh-day Adventists who have built an entire theology of pacifism around the mistranslation of this one word in the Sixth Commandment. They read, you shall not kill, and walked away thinking that any type of killing for any reason is forbidden by the Bible. That's one of the reason they're vegetarians, because they believe, well, you gotta kill an animal and, or unless you're gonna be a vegetarian, so I guess we'll all be vegetarians. But the Bible actually says you shall not murder. And as they began to build this new society, God said to Noah, one of the foundations of a godly society is to be capital punishment. If a man commits murder, that man must die. But then notice that in that verse six, the Lord tells Noah why this must be the case. And I had you underline that word for. That word for just means because. It's because in the image of God, he made man. The reason why capital punishment is necessary, the reason why the person who takes human life must themselves have their life taken is because God created man in the image of God. The Lord didn't do that with any of the other animals. Men and women are unique. We're the only beings made in the image of God. We're not just another animal species. And the Lord is saying taking a human life is completely different to taking the life of an animal even though your vegan friends on Facebook are posting memes to the contrary. So make a note of this. Human life is sacred. That's the key word. Human life is sacred because we are made in the image of God. Human life is sacred because we're made in the image of God. And if you'd like to know more about what it means when we say that we're made in the image of God, you can check out the sixth message in this Genesis series on the website. It's called Our Beginning. You can go and watch or listen to that for more information. One of the huge implications of this is that Christians who oppose the death penalty in the name of social justice are opposing God's direct instructions in the Bible. They're lining up against the Lord on this issue. And you might say, but Jeff, come on, this is Old Testament, this is the law, this is the Old Covenant, we're living in the New Covenant, the New Testament age of grace. Well, first of all, this is not the law, is it? This is pre-law. The law isn't gonna be given for a long, long time when it's given to Moses centuries and centuries later. This is a command that predates the law. And also remember what we've talked about before, that all aspects of the Old Testament law of God have not fallen away. 
The ceremonial aspects of the law are no longer required of us. Those things that were designed to reveal God's holiness and teach his people to live separate from the rest of the ways of the world. So we don't have to do ritual hand washing, ritual cleanliness, or things like that. Those are ceremonial parts of the law. They were fulfilled by the perfect life of Jesus. We don't need to do them anymore because we have the Holy Spirit to mark us as distinct and to help us to live as distinct. However, the moral aspects of the law continue and they're still valid and active because we're under the new covenant is it now okay to murder did that part of the law fall away of course not is adultery now okay is jealousy and covetousness acceptable now because we're in the new covenant age absolutely not why because they are moral laws And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually raised the standard of the moral law by revealing how deep our moral issues truly run. So the issue becomes really, is capital punishment a ceremonial or a moral law? I would say it predates the law, so the question doesn't matter. But even if you wanted to include it in the law, that would be the question. Is capital punishment a ceremonial law or a moral law? Well, When God gives the reason for it as being for in the image of God, he made man. He tells us that's the reason for the law of capital punishment. It would seem to be inarguably a moral issue, not a ceremonial one. Additionally, in the New Testament in Romans 13, the apostle Paul writes this when speaking to the Corinthian church about rulers and authorities in society. He says, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not, and it's on your outlines, underline this phrase, bear the sword in vain. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And I had you underline that phrase because in scripture, in that language, in that time, the only reason an authority figure would bear the sword was to execute capital punishment. That's what it's talking about there. Right there in Romans, in the New Testament, Paul is affirming that it's still part of God's design for government. The Lord wanted everyone to understand the seriousness of taking another person's life. The Lord wanted society to be built on the guiding principle that human life is sacred. But the truth is we live in a society that doesn't believe human life is sacred. If they did, our human society wouldn't be able to justify abortion or euthanasia. If there is no God, then humans aren't made in the image of God. And so you can't make any argument for human life being sacred. If there's no God and we weren't created by a God, there is no argument that human life is sacred. It means we're just another animal species. And since we live in a society that does not want to recognize God, we find ourselves in a society that is unable to justify human life being sacred. And we're living in a time where we're experiencing the downstream effect of this because if murder is essentially at the top of the crime pyramid, if if the top crime is murder and it deserves the most severe punishment that the justice system can offer, then every other crime is going to be punished based on the bar that is set by the punishment that is administered for murder. Are you with me? That, that's what's establishing the reference point in any justice system is how do you treat murder and that becomes the bar for how you treat everything else. Here's what I mean. If the murderer gets the death penalty, then the rapist gets 30 years or something like that. 
But if the murderer is getting out on parole after around 10 years, then the rapist is getting five years, three years, two years. And I don't even need to argue this point because we're living in a society that's already there, right? Like we're already there right here in Canada, right here in Vancouver. We put away a rapist for the most a couple of years and then let them loose in society. And you even see in the newspaper, on the news every now and then, the police will say, this person has finished their term, they're being released after seven years. Have you ever seen these ones where they say, we have no reason to even believe they're reformed and we expect them to commit a crime again, but there's nothing we can do because they finished their sentence. It's insane. So we're gonna let them loose and just wait for them to harm another person so that we can put them away for maybe seven years this time rather than five. Isn't that dangerous? I mean, don't we know better? Yes and yes. But when we're putting murderers away for 10 years or less, we can't justify holding the rapist for more than three, four, or five. So write this down. Capital punishment sets the bar for a society's entire justice system. A society's entire justice system. Capital punishment was given as a command by God for the reason that human life is sacred because humans are made in the image of God. Capital punishment is a moral law, not a ceremonial law, meaning it's still in effect, which means that if you're a Christian, you need to be on board with God's perspective on this issue. You need to be on board with God's perspective on this issue. And I don't think, if we're honest, that our opinion is going to change the political landscape on this issue in Canada. But I share this so that we can at least be on the same page with God regarding the issue. Because we always wanna be on the same page with God on every issue, amen? That was super unconvincing. I mean, like, are you sure? Amen? Like, we wanna be on the same page with God, right? Okay, good, good, good. Verse seven, the Lord says, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off. Now, with the Lord and with Facebook, you gotta read the small print which is this next phrase, by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And as we've said before, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll realize God is going to keep his promise. He is never again going to destroy the earth with a flood. However, he will inflict some serious damage during the tribulation time period and after Jesus has reigned on the earth for a thousand years, this world and the entire universe will be destroyed by fire. As 2 Peter 3.10 tells us on your outlines, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. But no worries about a catastrophic flood, just to put your mind at rest, okay? Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So every time you see a rainbow, I would encourage you to take it as a reminder that our God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises always and unfailingly. That's what a rainbow is there to remind us of. Now one quick side note. I'd thought about talking about the whole dinosaur issue and I just want to let you know that could have been a huge sidebar for us, but I want to keep moving through the book of Genesis. If that's an issue that interests you, I would highly recommend the website AnswersInGenesis.com, Answers in Genesis, and just type in whatever the question is. What happened to the dinosaurs? Were there dinosaurs on the ark? And there are far better answers there than I can offer you here with pictures I might add. So be sure to check that out. It's very readable, written in common language, and we'll, we'll give you a lot of insight into the issue, and I, and I pretty much back the view that they share on that website. So let's keep moving here. We're going to shift gears. An amount of time passes. We don't know how much. Could be a few months. Could be several years. That's probably what it is, several years. Could be a few decades. But it says in verse 18, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. So we know that Ham had at least one child by this point. Some time had passed. He had a son named Canaan. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. In the days of the flood and the 120 years leading up to the flood, Noah was walking with the Lord. As is the case for all of us, living in a time of crisis tends to draw us closer to the Lord. It just enhances our spiritual focus. Isn't it amazing that one of the times we're most vulnerable to sin is when things are easy, when everything's working out, when things are going smoothly, when there is no crisis to draw us close to the Lord? That's when we tend to get spiritually apathetic and adopt the attitude, well, well I don't really need to press into the Lord in my relationship with him. I mean, everything's good. So I don't need him as bad right now. And I would ask you if you've been there, but I know you have. And so I won't ask you because those of you who won't admit it will be lying and I don't want to put you in that situation. We've all been there. Write this down and we'll talk about it. When life is easy and comfortable, we often fall into spiritual apathy and become spiritually vulnerable. When life is easy and comfortable, we often fall into spiritual apathy and become spiritually vulnerable. I genuinely believe the Lord would love to make all of our lives smooth and easy all the time. I think he'd love to do that, but he can't because if he did, we'd become spiritually apathetic. We'd stop drawing close to him. We'd stop growing and becoming more like Jesus, which is the thing that will benefit us most for all eternity. And so the Lord who loves us in the truest sense does what is best for us, which is he keeps us growing. And unfortunately, for almost all of us, that means he cannot allow things to be smooth and easy all the time. 
because instead of being grateful and saying, this is so great, now I've got the energy and the time to really devote myself to the Lord, most of us would just take a nap, literally and spiritually. Please know that you and I becoming more like Jesus is more important than having an easy life. One of the best things that I heard uh, someone share one time is to the classic complaint of, well, if God is good, then, then, then you know, why do bad things happen? And he just made a good point. He said that whole objection is based on the assumption that everything going well for you in this life is the very best thing that could happen to you in this life. And that's an assumption. It's not the truth. Everything going well for you and easy in this life is not the best thing that could happen to you. You and I becoming as much like Jesus as possible during this life is the best thing that could happen to us, which is a good thing to keep in mind. Well, Noah gets to the place where things are easy for a while. Apparently, his sons are working. They've got food growing. The uh, plants are planted, and so he can do something a little more recreational. So he plants a vineyard. He grows some grapes. And those grapes sit out for a while, which turns those grapes into wine, vino. And Noah has so much of it that he loses control of himself and gets himself tangled in some sin. Verse 21, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Starts running around naked in his own tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This is, this is gonna get ugly. There's no other way to say it. Most Bible commentators agree that there's more going on here than Ham simply getting a glimpse of his father naked and passed out in his tent. There's something more going on. And the reason commentators hold that view is because of the phrase, saw the nakedness of his father. Uh, that sort of phrase in the Torah, in the original Hebrew, was used at the time to describe some sort of sexually immoral activity taking place in addition to seeing the person naked. In fact, in Leviticus 18, this is on your outlines, in the law of God, notice the verbiage here, the Lord says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. Underline this last one. It is your father's nakedness. It is your father's nakedness. That last sentence says, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. So the first possibility is that Ham saw his father naked and drunk went into his tent and performed some type of incestual sexual act upon him. And I don't think I need to lay out the possibilities even though this is an in-depth Bible study. I think we've reached a sufficient level of gross and you can figure out what those possibilities would be or you could walk in righteousness and not do that mental exercise. The second possibility is that Ham took advantage of his father's inebriated state to engage in some type of incestual sexual activity with his mother, Noah's wife. And that possibility arises, some scholars say, from what we just read in Leviticus 18, which refers to the nakedness of a man's father's wife being the same as the father's own nakedness. 
And as twisted as it is, there seems to be more than one occasion in the Old Testament where an ambitious son tried to claim political power within a family by engaging in sexual activity with his father's wife or wives. Jacob's son Reuben sought to undermine his favorite half-brother Joseph by taking his father's concubine. For that, he ended up being cursed by his father. Likewise, Absalom resented the plans of his father, King David, to give the throne to one of his younger half-brothers, Solomon. And in response, you know the whole story of Absalom's rebellion. Absalom drives King David out of Jerusalem. And then to make a point that he was seizing political power in the family, he sleeps with all of his father's concubines in full view of everybody in the city. City. Kind of a weird time. Because of verse 24, which we're going to read in a moment, I believe that the first option is the most likely that Ham performs some incestuous sexual act upon his father, Noah. Both possibilities are awful, perverted, and obviously would have resulted in Noah being furious when he awoke, sobered up, and realized what had happened. And we'll get to the consequences of Ham's actions in a few minutes. But for now, uh, note the contrast of the actions by Noah's other two sons. Verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered, underline the word covered, the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth, they know that their father's made a huge mistake and is making a complete fool of himself. But because he's their father, they want to show him honor in this bad situation. And so they, they grab a blanket and walk backwards into the tent so that they can cover him up with a blanket without seeing him in his naked, humiliating state. And I think possibly also because when your dad is over 600 years old, you really don't want to see him naked, period. And we all understand the dynamics that are at play in this situation. Hopefully you've never been in a similar situation, but we can all imagine the dynamics at play. If a family or close friend were passed out drunk and naked on your lawn, the right thing to do would be to cover them up and bring them inside. And you might think it would be hilarious to take pictures and send them to everybody you know or call attention to them in their embarrassing condition, but we all intuitively understand that, heaven forbid we ever found ourselves in that situation, what we would want from a friend is for them to take care of us and minimize the embarrassment that was caused by our bad decision. In addition to the sexual violation committed by Ham, he seems to have proceeded to tell his brothers about it, bringing further shame to his father. In contrast, the two other sons of Noah sought to protect and cover their father in his moment of weakness. In 1 Peter 4.8, we are told, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For, and then underline this, love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Now that doesn't mean that a person gets away with their sin. Nobody ever gets away with their sin. The Lord says in his word, be sure your sin will find you out. It means that when a Christian makes a sinful mistake, love still takes care of that person. If your kid cuts their knee because they disobeyed you and did something dangerous that you told them not to do, you're still gonna put that Band-Aid on. You're still going to care about what's best for them. The sin is going to get dealt with, but you're going to still look out for them and care for them, even though they chose to make a mistake. And that's what Shem and Japheth were doing for their father. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Corinthian church and said, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
In other words, we're going to choose to see one another the way that God sees us, robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And we're going to treat each other based on who we're destined to become rather than who we are in the flesh right now. Verse 24, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had and then underlined done to him. And I understand the reason for my view on this issue. He knew what his son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. The curse pronounced here by Noah, do you notice, is not on Ham, but on who? On on Ham's son, Canaan. And most commentators agree this is not a curse that Noah is putting on Canaan. Rather, it is a prophetic word that he is speaking to Ham, declaring that if Ham has such sinful and perverse things in his heart, If he doesn't think there's anything wrong with doing this kind of thing, it is destined to result in curses for his children and his family line because he's going to pass that behavior on to them and it's gonna get worse and that's gonna bring all kinds of curses upon their family. A modern day parallel would be the tragic example we see where where people are abused by a parent when they're a child that many, many times they themselves will grow up to become abusers, unless there's some sort of miraculous intervention in that person's life. And we see that because that curse travels on to the children because they see it modeled. Noah doesn't have to put some curse on him. He's saying you are. Your son is cursed because you're his dad. And this is the behavior that you're teaching him is normal. And societies that are built on sexual perversion are going to find themselves cursed in some terribly tragic ways. That's just the nature of the beast of sin. And that is exactly what would happen to Ham's descendants. Who do you think the sons of Canaan would grow to become? The infamous Canaanites. Those people who were so immoral, so sexually perverse, you can't even talk about it in church, honestly, in any type of specific terms. They refused to repent for 400 years. And then when the children of Israel went into the promised land, they were one of those ethnic groups that God said, I need you to wipe them out. Every man, woman, and child, because the corruption runs so deep, it is irreparable. They're beyond saving. The best thing you can do for them is put them out of their misery. They were just so, so corrupted. And you know from some of our earlier studies, this is potentially the reason why there's a linkage if you do all the study uh, in the scriptures between the Canaanites and the Rephaim, which is a variant of Nephilim that we studied back in Genesis 6. Why would they be drawn to that even after it resulted in the flood the first time? Because they were just completely involved in sexual perversity in any way they could be. Verse 26, and he, this is Noah, said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant, seemingly implying that the Lord was not the God of Ham, because Ham was choosing not to walk with the Lord. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I just want to point out that, that nowhere in this narrative is there any indication or mention of wine itself being sinful. And that's because drinking wine or, or any alcohol is not a sin. The issue with wine and alcohol is that if you consume enough of it in a short enough period of time, 
it can increase greatly the odds of you doing or saying something that is sinful. When we're drunk, our restraint is greatly weakened. Our judgment becomes compromised. And if you drink enough, a lack of restraint combined with impaired judgment can be a dangerous combination that results in sin, especially sins that you wouldn't normally commit in a normal state of mind. So the question becomes, well, okay, Jeff, well, how much is okay to drink? Well, up to the point where it starts making you more susceptible to sin than you would normally be. And just knowing that line requires an honest evaluation of oneself because some of us can't have one or two drinks because we can't stop at one or two drinks. And if you can't stop at one or two drinks, then you need to have no drinks because you know where it's gonna lead. You're setting yourself up to sin. Alcohol is not a sin, but it can lead to sinful behaviors. And I believe that the Bible's admonition to each of us would be, wine is for enjoyment, not to encourage sin. And so if you can't enjoy it without it leading to sin or leading to great risk of sin, then it's probably not for you. Righteousness is, is far more important than pleasure. So if you have to choose between the two, choose righteousness. Choose righteousness. Shem and Japheth provide a, a wonderful example for you and I. Because in a difficult situation, when someone they loved was stumbling in sin, the question they asked was, how can we minister to them in this situation? How can we minister to them in this situation? And in that situation, the way that they could minister to him was covering up his nakedness rather than exposing it, saving him further embarrassment. But that's a great question to ask in these type of situations. How can I minister to him? How can I minister to her in this situation? Love them, pray for them. Do talk to them about their sin when, when they sober up, when they sober up from whatever sin they're involved in. But don't add to their shame because sin provides more than enough shame all by itself. That is the question. When you see a brother or a sister in the Lord going off, engaging in sin, ask the question, man, how can I minister to them in this situation? And then when they've sobered up, you can confront the sin but have the question of how can I minister to them at the forefront of your mind. We all know that, that nothing is hidden from the Lord for any of us. Hebrews 4.13 declares that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. We're all naked before the Lord in every sense of the word. He saw our sin, he saw our guilt, he saw our shame. And what did the Lord do? Well, the Bible tells us that God is love and as we read earlier, the word declares that love will cover a multitude of sins. And that's exactly what the Lord has done for each of us. He has covered our sins with the righteousness of Jesus, paid for with his blood, which means that our sins are not waiting to shame and torment us in eternity. They're covered, they're paid for, they're dealt with, they're dealt with. And so if you're thankful for that covering, and I know you are, let me encourage us once again this evening to not take sin lightly. To not take sin lightly. To not allow seasons of comfort to become seasons of sin. And let me just say, as a dad, a special word to moms and dads, but especially fathers. You know, it's so easy for us to often think, 
man, I'll deal with the consequences of my sin. I know there's gonna be blowback. I know I'll have to pay for it, but, but I, I can take it. I wanna do this sin bad enough right now that I'll, I'll just deal with the consequences. But, but the thing we never think about is that the consequences don't just come back on us. They come back on our kids. There is a trickle down effect. Dads, especially that, that anger issue that you won't fully deal with. That internet porn habit, indulgence, that, that you tell yourself nobody else is gonna know. Those things trickle down to your kids because just as our children observe our behaviors and attitudes and pick up on them, and have you ever had that horrible moment where you see an attitude in your kid and you realize they got it from you? It's awful, it's awful. But we know that our behaviors and attitudes trickle down to our kids. Here's what we forget. When we allow sin and a specific sin to make a home in our home through us, that sin isn't gonna stop with us. It's gonna go for our kids too. And so moms and dads, it's worth asking the question, what am I allowing into my home? Dads, the Lord has made you the spiritual head of your family. What are you allowing into your home? Are you allowing sins that are going to curse your kids? Seriously, curse your kids. Or are you dealing with sin ruthlessly and saying the only thing I'm gonna pass down to my kids are the blessings of the Lord? I'm gonna make sure of that. If you haven't experienced this yet and you're a parent, I promise you, you have no idea how painful it will be to see your secret sins begin to show up in the lives of your children. You don't wanna do that. And it'll happen unless you deal with sin ruthlessly, ruthlessly. And today you've got another chance to do that. You can repent, you can take communion, thank the Lord that you're forgiven, but remember that repentance is making the actual change and walking away from that sin. So if there's something in your life you need to change, change it. Change it for your kids, for your family, for your household, for your future kids, for your grandkids. Be the spiritual leader of your home, Dad. And don't allow sin to make a home in your home. Don't raise kids who are cursed because we wouldn't deal with our sin. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, just a, a heavy word from your word, but thank you that you love us enough to show us in your word how these things work so that we would not be deceived by the lies of our spiritual adversary, God. You've explained to us and given us clear examples of what sin can do when it's not dealt with. And Father, every single one of us that are parents and grandparents desire to see nothing but your favor and blessings passed down through our family lines, Lord. So would you help us to deal ruthlessly with sin, Lord God. Would you help us to get it out of our homes and give it no place, no foothold in our homes, Lord God. Father, thank you so much that when we were exposed and shamed and naked in our sinful state, you covered us with your righteousness, purchased with your blood on the cross. And robed in your righteousness, we are sons and daughters of God, seen as just as blameless as Jesus himself, incredible as that is. 
Father, we ask that by your spirit you would empower us to look at each other that way, to see each other and to interact with each other based on who we're becoming, who we're destined to be in Christ rather than who we are right now in our flesh. Help us to minister to one another in our moments of weakness rather than point out and expose each other, Lord God. Help us to love each other well and represent you in the way we love one another, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.